What you're about to hear is a talkback for episode 2 of Streams and Variations. In this talkback, we'll be discussing the pieces in episode 2 and how they evolved. If you haven't heard episode 2 yet, please check it out first. You can find it at streamsandvariations.com or on the major platforms. Welcome to Streams and Variations Talkback. My name is Jamie Johnson, and I'm the host of Streams and Variations. I'm joined today by Streams and Variations co-producer Sean Erker and writer Barb Schefter. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Um, we started off this program in a little different way than we did the last one, because we started with a songwriter. And since we wanted uh, the same basic feeling for all of the writers in in, in these streams, uh, we decided to start this uh, program with a prompt. So I sent a prompt to uh, Miss Zuby Eros to start us off with the first song she called Garden. Um, because the last program was so dour and so dark, I wanted this one to be quite in a, in a different vein. So I uh, sent her a monologue, which you can find on our... our, our uh, Website. Website. Thank you. I knew there was a word for it somewhere. This is our technical help. Technical help. Thank you, Sean. Uh, on our website, and you could read it in its entirety, and it was based on a story of uh, uh, of uh, me working in a garden. So uh, that gave us the gave uh, Zuby an inspiration, and uh, what came out was the the uh, song "Garden." So, for that piece, uh, I asked Zuby what she took as inspiration, and uh, her response was to say that uh, she was inspired by the element of a family that's a little too busy to play, very much connected to the peace found in nature and solitude. She goes on to say that, when I was a kid, I used to work in the garden with my mom, which is one of my fondest childhood memories. So it's a, the thing I like about Zuby's piece is that it's a very simple idea that she expands upon musically and harmonically. Uh, she has some really nice poetic imagery that she just kind of lays out and then lets you, uh, uh, relax in and into it. Yeah. I, I find it, found it actually quite reminiscent of, of, uh, Rachel's piece, uh, last week in terms of the, the harmonics and, and, and the way that it's written actually give that breath and that airiness and that kind of, um, a, a bright feeling like a, a, like a wonderful summer's day. I, I, I found it quite enjoyable yeah. and quite, quite beautiful to listen to. So when I, to take it for an inspiration for a piece, because it's a very happy song and it's a very sweet melody. Um, it just made me think that this was something, this was a place that someone would go to for refuge, that this was a safe place for somebody, the garden. And so that's where I started when I just sat down to write that piece. They call it the garden state, you know. That's because they have so many beautiful gardens there. And I imagine myself walking into a diner like the one I work at and sitting in a booth all by myself, having a big meal with my coffee cup being filled up about a dozen times at least, and leaving the waitress such a huge tip that she'd say, oh, no, that's too I thought it was... Um... 
It was so funny when uh, we got your piece in, Barb, because, uh, you know, Jamie had been saying how he wanted to uh, set this off in a new direction to avoid the the dour tone of the first episode, which most of the pieces revolved around murder. And we got we got one, <laughs> one we got one piece in sorry, before it then <laughs> devolved back into murder. <laughs> devolved into murder. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're asked to write a ten minute monologue, it's quite a long that's quite long for a monologue. And so, you know, you basically have to write a story and then, you know, to write a story you have to have a problem. Every story is usually about a person who has a problem that needs to be solved in some way. And so, yeah. Now, you asked me to write this, and I write murder mysteries for a living. <laughs> Just so we're clear, that's where you came. That's who you went to. So if you were going to... No, 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 no. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And I and I absolutely take that as, a, as a, the reasoning for that you went to murder. But... You have to remember that when we listen to and we hear your piece, the, the way that it's been in recorded and, and brought to us, it has such a feeling of lightness and niceness to it. And, and the concept behind, uh, we talked last week about, or we, we talked in our last episode, uh, talk back about the concept of landscape and what landscape means to, to a piece of writing. Of how there is the the actual physical landscape uh, uh, of what the world is, and then there's also the social landscape of what the world is, and but what you captured in in that in in like three quarters of the story is an absolute landscape where you can feel the the, the kind of summeriness, the kind of, of of lightness that I was after. So I, I'm not hurt by the murder okay. <laughs> at all. I am definitely not hurt by the murder. Well, in this case, the murder was the solution to her problem, right? So, in fact, it, everything got better after she killed the guy. <laughs> so it truly does have a happy ending. And, uh, and because yeah. I was... You know, I was trying to kind of justify the murder too, really, because he was such an awful guy. But also I was, uh, you know, wanted to keep going with that idea of that the garden is like, that's her happy place, her refuge. So she's even, her whole plan is to run away to New Jersey, which hilariously is called the Garden State. The only times I've ever been in New Jersey, uh, there's not been anything garden-like about it at all. You're not the only ones that ever thought that way. I've passed through New Jersey a number of times in my life, and believe me, it was just passing through. I was not really willing to stay there in any ways whatsoever. Well, there go all our potential New New Jersey listeners. Thanks a lot, Jamie. So, for your piece, Barb, the other thing that's interesting about it is you have a few different locations. Um, and I like that because... The story runs through two, a few different settings and a few different elements. And when we take that to the next piece, uh, Eric Bleach's song, uh, he takes a part of the part of it that I wouldn't have yeah. expected. Um, you know, uh, you kind of have this backstory about her life in the uh, as a as a, a waiter at a diner and what that means essentially, and and how that leads into the main part of the story and how that leads her to do the things that she does. And Eric kind of took that backstory detour, which is, I think is a really fun part of your story and 
use that as his primary inspiration, which I thought was a, a kind of a unexpected turn. I like I said, I write murder mysteries. It's a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of very quick things that happen, and it's very. Uh, two-dimensional character is usually when you write a murder mystery because, you know, it's all about the plot and the clues. And so to have one voice speaking for 10 minutes, I really wanted to delve into her life. Like, what does she do for a living? What is her daily life like? You know, um, how has she been compensating living with this this violent man? And one of the things was she always takes the night shift. Right. So they can they spend as little time together as possible. It's kind of funny because when I sat down and I and it was like, OK, 10 minutes. Oh, my gosh, that's so much time to fill. And then as I sat down and started writing basically the life story of this woman at this point in her life, um, I actually ended up with too much material. Like I had a whole thing about her sister and, you know, her relationship with the owner of the diner and all this stuff. And I actually had to scale it back. So it was so interesting. Well, see, now you need to release the expanded edition, Silmarillion style. Yeah, I think it was too long. I mean, really, it really was too long. But, you know, I did have to because, you know, and also be, when you're writing something that's just being listened to, it's not a play. No one's seeing anything. You know, there's also this tendency to want to put in a lot of description. But, you know, so again, that was part of why it was so long. So I had to scale that back and just put enough that you knew where you were and what we were talking about, you know. And so that was a good exercise for me, actually, to edit myself. And that was actually, you know, I thought that was actually really well done uh, because there are parts of your monologue where you you have some conf- some things that could be confusing elements, but you make it clear to the listener explicitly uh, what's going on. You know, you have her start off, hey, Freddie, you're a good frog. Okay, well, she's talking to a frog, but it's only like two or three lines later that you say, but you're made of concrete and you're really heavy and you make it come out like it's a, it's a a rational part of the narrative, but it explains to it. Oh, okay. So she's talking to a concrete frog. And so it it allows the listener to have an accurate mental picture, which I thought was really well done. I'd fly across the ocean. Yeah, so moving on to Eric's piece, which we kind of uh, briefly touched upon already in, in how it, it expands upon Barb's. But I asked Eric what he took from, from Barb's. And so uh, he said he found the details, and this is kind of what we were saying before. He said, I found the details of the diner scene quite compelling. It felt to me that uh, Barb likely spent some time working in that field. And it reminded me of my time spent hanging around uh, places like open stages or having a, a local Having close and having close relationships with the staff and the regulars, and then he says, "I initially wrote more of a murder ballad, just like <laughs> everything is going to be murder." But 
We just can't he get said, away but from it murder. Quite clear that the scenes in the bar felt the most real to him, that it was a story that he could tell. So instead of her hiding her tips to escape from the abusive asshole, she's stuck at work on a night where everything is going wrong and wishes she could just get, get away from it all, which is a feeling I think anyone can find empathy in. So uh, that's what he says. And I was listening to his song and some of the things that I think come out through that uh barb's piece that are then echoed in eric's song like he talks about the last line of the song is uh i'd fly across the ocean if i could only know the way and so you know it's a it's a common bird metaphor to escape from a scenario but it's also directly echoing the references in barb's piece to the birds can you hear the birds can you see the birds which themselves are metaphors for being caged and escaping, which is kind of a subtext in Barb's piece, I think. Uh, probably intentional. <laughs> you can say one way or the other. But, uh, <laughs> yes, well, it was. Uh, Absolutely. But uh, <laughs> that was something that then I think consciously or, or unconsciously Eric latched onto because then he starts using these metaphors about escaping from a scenario like a bird, like freedom like a bird. Did he? Did you say that he said that he thought I had some experience working in a diner? That's what he says. Oh, he probably doesn't know. <laughs> he says it Ooh. seems to me. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, I'll take that as a compliment because I have never worked in a diner. As a matter of fact, you do as a writer. You do plenty of research, so you know you you <laughs> spent days. Wait, you know, who told you following that? Following around a, di- a diner patron. Research. You know. Sorry, I don't understand that word. Uh, no, no, I, uh, I've never worked in a, I've never worked as a waitress. I actually, in my, I just have to say that in my life, I have tried many times to get a job as a waitress and I never got the job. I don't know why. No one ever trusted me with food. I'm not sure. But, um, but to me, it was more about imagining what kind of a life this person would have, you know? Um, yeah, but Barb, you do understand the experience. I mean, you do work at mystery dinner theaters. You do know how have been around that milieu. For yeah, I've been in a, a diner. You for do sure. understand. I've been in a like diner. A, like many a times. true <laughs> world experienced <laughs> woman, you have been in a diner. You, you see what people are like. Is what I'm. What I'm. And after. to be fair, like when I was, you know, uh, sorry, I'm I'm dragging you back to my piece. But when I was uh, writing the, you know, all about like being in the house and you know waiting listening to the car pull up. I was actually borrowing from my childhood because I lived in a bungalow, a very small bungalow. We were not wealthy when I was a child. And, you know, there was six of us crammed into this tiny house. And I do, I have this memory of my dad driving his car into the driveway and us hearing it. And that's how we knew he was home. Right. And so I kind of feel like sometimes, you know, when I write pieces like that, it's like it's a life maybe I could have lived, a direction I could have gone to. And I did like the the piece. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the composer's name. Eric, or you're talking uh, about Eric Leach? Eric, the, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the thing I really loved about that song is that it, it kind of, uh, you know, filled in more of that world, you know, that kind of crappy bar and the regulars and, you know, somebody doing speed in the bathroom like you know clearly that neighborhood that I grew up in he that's where he was too you know it was like we were in the same neighborhood writing our pieces yeah and and I think we actually find that through through this entire stream uh as a matter of fact we yeah. we, we find that that 
after we've come out of uh, of Zuby, everybody seems to go into the darkness again. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of like you you set up. Well, because Zuby's song was, you know, it was like a garden, which was beautiful, but it wasn't very specific. Like it could be any garden and, you know, you, right? So you pick a garden in your mind. So when, when I got my hands on it, I put it somewhere. It was in a particular neighborhood and it was, yeah. So now we, and then everyone had to live in that neighborhood, you know, all the pieces down the line, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of wild. It's kind of awesome that, you know, you establish a place and then everyone has to play in that. But I think that's what the whole point is of these exercises. What we're trying to do here is trying to find, um, how, if somebody creates a space or a landscape that is very specific, then all of a sudden everybody wants to play in it. Okay. Somebody's created the sandbox. And all I'm trying to do when I start these things is give somebody enough information to start a sandbox. It's the, and the, so that people then can go out and play and do the things they want to do. And I think it's amazing. And yeah, and I think just from a general perspective, it's, it's interesting to take that out because in the, in the last talk back for the first episode, we, we, we talked about how the settings of the piece carried through most of the pieces. They were all very uh, uh, farm-oriented, um, you know, agrarian somewhat. And when you paint the picture of a location, that's what that's part of what people kind of internalize about what this piece means to them. And I think that the, 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 the setting carrying over from one piece to the next is, is always such an interesting characteristic in these circumstances. Um, and that you saw yeah. that with Eric, definitely. And in this case too, I think like the social class in a way too, right? Cause these characters all seem to be in the world, except for maybe uh, Roxanne's piece, which I thought those people could be, could be, part of any right yeah yeah social class because it was more about the relationship yeah mm-hmm. absolutely yeah now um there was one little verse in in or one part of uh, the second verse of eric's that he wrote uh, a, a very lovely little um set of lines here um somehow he cannot see that the stranger sitting next to him someday is going to be telling all our stories when we're just a memory i i've i've <laughs> I find that very interesting because all of a sudden we're going to go move into David Healy's piece. And David Healy's piece is about telling a story. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. That jumped out at me too. Right. Cause the, in the song, it's like the stranger's telling your story. And, and, and then there's this character telling the story of some other guy telling his story. Like it's, Right, three degrees of separation. It was actually I thought that was so clever. So here we are. So let's uh, s- slide our way onto um, an ode to Neil by David Healy. Friend, apparently his dog has vascular issues. Who talks about their dog like that? Vascular issues. Jesus, that's something your uncle gets. You know, like uh, where's old Uncle Teddy? Oh, he can't come by today. Oh, why not? Vascular issues. Oh, yeah, I hear they're going around. Then it makes sense. Then vascular issues make sense. Yeah, that was, it was such an interesting, you know, I love David's writing actually, because he, he has such clever turns of phrases and his characters are so interesting. Like the character talking was clearly, you know, uh, just such a quirky guy and he had all his things about the humming and the singing. Um, and it was such a, it, it was funny cause it was such a long walk, right? It was like a long walk to get to the heart of what we were talking about. And the heart of that story was he misses his friend, you know, <laughs> 
like all this talk about the dog and the and the dead cat and the like it's like such a long walk to get to what the heart was and the heart was that he just missed his friend he was mad that his friend left because he misses him it's you know that's such a hallmark of david's stuff like you know it's there's such a heartwarming tale at the, at the core of it um but you got to go through all this quirky funny stuff to get there um i yeah i thought that was great yeah, I think, and the, the thing that I loved about it is that it's, like you said, it's, it's essentially a shaggy dog story. He, he has just yeah. <laughs> written a shaggy dog story, and then he kind of hangs a lantern on that, you know, about a third of the way through by literally talking about a dog and how annoying the story about the dog yeah. is. <laughs> As if to draw attention to the fact that he is actually telling a shaggy dog story, which I just, I love so yeah. much because that's a lot of. Like you said, David's work often has this kind of genre satire to it where he is satirizing a, a type of uh, story or a type of storytelling technique. Yes, and it's very funny, too, that in, in, in the monologue, the character says, that's not even a story. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but what I'm listening to isn't really a story either yet, too. Like, you're like, when is the story going to start? Yeah, he's so funny. I was going to start and talk about actually the the structure of the story, but you you've touched on it a couple of times. Is that the the actual story doesn't start until halfway through? But what that does though is that opening that first half of this 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 piece actually sets up the landscape of what's going on and leave, puts you in that place where the rest of the story comes from. Well, it certainly reveals the character, right? Like it, you really know this guy by the time. Oh, you've got a. Really clear. You, know, you get to the guy. actual action of what's happening here that his friend has left. I mean, we we learn so much about him just in the little things he says. You know, um, um, who the fuck plans the hump? Like, I, I mean, that's that 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 little turn of phrase by the guy tells you so much about who he is as a person. It's just I. I, I found myself just chuckling all the way through, which is uh, probably not the best thing to do when you're trying to look at it and, and sort of break it down into things and, and see how it evolves and all the rest of it. But I, I just I just find all that and uh, his humor just so ultimately genuine. And unfortunately, you still had a murder there, though, because the cat died. So, you know, you just can't get away from death. But in we don't things. know. The cat he committed suicide. Well, remember? we don't know for sure. We, because he didn't leave a note. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It's all supposition. It's all supposition. So uh, I'm going to chime in here with uh, David's thoughts on this. So uh, I asked David what he took as inspiration. And uh, he says, uh, the first thing I took was the location, a bar. So here we are again. It's the setting is a primary uh, source of, of continuing inspiration. A bar that was a bit of a dive that has live music and a clientele is somewhat down and out. That gave me not only the location, but the tone of the piece and the protagonist's character. In addition, I wanted to use a couple of characters from the song. So I used Neil, who'd left, and Ray, who stopped drinking. And then I shook it up and improvised within those parameters. And then he goes on to say, or maybe because I had a glass of wine and that's just what my brain did. Uh, and then he says, I was more literal than I would normally be, but I wanted to, uh, the challenge of working within a set of strict parameters. So when he was keeping himself within the location of the previous set, uh, song, keeping some of the characters, keeping some characteristics about the characters that Ray's not drinking, but becomes a very uh, key plot point. I kind of like that. Like, I kind of like 
him like I kind of like taking a literal approach. I think that's because then it's cool to have heard a song with those characters and what they and then to have a scene and it's like your brain goes, "Oh, like you you it it feels familiar and you can like kind of ding 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 there's something that came from that." So I actually like that. I think that's great. I think that's a really cool way to go. Yeah, I thought that was great too. The other thing uh it sort of reminds me of like those uh those musicals like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the the album, but the musical based on the album where every character is for some reason named after a character from one of the songs and sometimes their dialogue will be taken from some of the songs and not always really believable, but, you know, you throw it out there and you go, ah, I know that one. I know that one. That's Lucy. That's Lucy and this guy. It's fun, right? It's like you're. It's like playing, uh, you know, um, a game where you're kind of looking for the clues or whatever. Yeah, I think it's great. Of course, it is. But that's what the, that's the best thing about restrictions. Sometimes when you're, when, when you're placed in this kind of situation where you have to write something based on something else, you give yourself a set of restrictions to start off with, and then you just allow yourself to say, okay, if these are the parameters I have, what can I do with that? And that, of course, is what gives you the, the the ability to go beyond the bounds of what would normally happen, at least as far as I'm concerned. And I find that very much very often, that if somebody tells me I need this, 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 and this, and this is the things that we have to do, then my imagination becomes playful. Then it becomes broadening. Then it becomes wider. There, there's something about that that just lets you go. Okay, I think this is a good time. Let's move on to a piece by uh, Sean Clark called Ballad of a Selfish Man. Sometimes I sing out loud I don't know what that's about It sure don't make me proud But what you gonna do? They don't let you sing just anywhere yeah again it was you know the continuation of how that you know he took some of the ideas uh, like I love the whole thing about you're not allowed to sing you know anywhere anymore you're not allowed to hum you know whatever like he that again you're like oh he took that from the monologue like that's cool I like that um I actually really enjoyed that song. I liked it a lot. Although it, it ended kind of abruptly. That's the only thing that I was like, what, what happened? Is it over? So, <laughs> but again, I like that it, you know, you could see the relationship it had to the piece before, right? Um, and it was sort of a continuation again of that, that community, the, those characters, that place, that whole kind of, like you were saying, location, 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 right? It just kept going in the same place. One of the interesting things is, like Jamie said, in the last piece, when uh, David Healy was crafting it, he he puts in a lot of these kind of funny, pithy turns of phrases. Um, they're kind of very David things to say, but Jamie pointed out the who the fuck chooses to hum kind of a thing. And when I asked Sean about uh, what he took, uh, he particularly mentioned that there was a few lines, just particular lines and turns of phrases that he really liked. Um, so I'll read out what he said here. When I received the monologue from the mystery writer, I read it a couple times. 
and wasn't sure how to proceed. Uh, I went through a third time with a red marker and underlined two or three sentences that spoke to me, and one in particular was, they don't let you sing just anywhere. I thought the story was pretty concise, so I decided to focus instead on the character, what kind of man he was. I pictured someone who doesn't have a lot of friends. Uh, as confirmed in the story, Neil doesn't seem like much of a friend at all. He's hampered by a patriarchal view of masculinity. He can hide his emotions to a certain point and takes pride in doing so, but is embarrassed by those that slip through the cracks. Seem as a lonely person who needs to talk to someone, but doesn't have the social skills to know how to talk to people or when to shut up. And so he sees the bartender is his therapist. And so I think that's kind of what the ending of the piece is supposed to be like, is this reveal that he's talking to the bartender. And the bartender is just kind of like, dude, like, I do not have time for this. And the guy just walks away or I, something. <laughs> and you see, I, I found that last little bit, I'm not a talking man. Hey, why'd he shake his head? I found that a very David Healy turn of phrase. It's so interesting that he took the, he underlined lines and took them and put them in. Because I, actually, I did the same thing when I listened to the song. Because in the garden, there are lines like, everything's fine. Everything's Okay. And I had my character say those lines, you know, and I, I, like to me, I was trying to make it a very kind of, you know, juxtaposition of that she's sitting there saying, oh, isn't it nice? Everything's fine. Everything's okay. And there's a dead body in her garden, you know, so, but that, but I like that. See, again, I like that he took stuff from the material before and put it in his piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a different context. Mm-hmm. It, it it just, to me, it's like this confession of a man that's sitting at a bar is an amazing place to play with a character. And we talked last week with David, David Newberry, about he kept talking about songwriting as an observational thing, as that, and that you're describing the things that you see around you. I, I think in this case, Sean actually wrote a song from an interior point of view. He wrote about a first-person narrative rather than an observational narrative. And I found that very, very fun to sit and listen to. So um, to build on what you said, Jamie, about this being a very internalized monologue, kind of uh, uh, self-reflective, the thing that's interesting is when you compare it to David's piece, David's piece I think is quite funny in a lot of ways. It's a dry humor, but, you know, the, the, there's some good laughs in there. It's kind of stretching out the joke in a, in a conscious way. It knows that the audience is hopefully going to be chuckling at some of this, at how the absurdity of how the story is being drawn out. But the character's sad. So you have a funny story where the character is sad in kind of a sad place. And so when Sean writes about that, he's internalizing for that character and it kind of becomes just a sad piece. You kind of just, you lose the humor. Like, and that doesn't mean has to be a jokey song, but I just found it interesting that something that I would characterize as primarily a comedic monologue becomes a very sad, wistful song. And it makes total sense because the song is adapting the character. I think the difference is that, you know, you've got in the monologue, the the character is not self-aware and in the song he is, right? Do you know what I mean? Like that the the character in the monologue is not at all reflecting 
uh, you know, he's like, how, who tells a story like that? And you don't do that. And cats can't write like, you know, he's always talking about the people around him, you know, and, you know, a best friend should do this and a best friend should do that. You know, when of course, but he's not sitting there saying, I'm sad because my friend left. He's not self-aware, but the song is suddenly that character being self-aware, right? Well, people say I'm an honest man. Maybe I am, maybe. You know, like he's talking, he's reflecting on who he is all of a sudden, whereas in the monologue, he doesn't at all. So that's, I think, the difference, and I think it's very cool. I think that'll take us to the last piece, which uh, is written by Roxanne Norman. It's called A Voicemail Message. Hey, oh, <laughs> you didn't pick up. So I'm just going to leave you a message, I guess. Uh, I was thinking about reaching out to um, connect with you briefly. Uh, like I saw on Facebook that you're moving to Parkdale and going back to um, I mean, I had a hard time, I have to say, sort of trying to figure out how it was related to the song. Um, so, I mean, I... I, well, like then I, you I, are I in luck. To the whole thing to, you are in luck that I am. Yeah, here. I was hoping you would explain it to me because I listened to everything twice, you know, but I didn't sit down and do a big analysis. So I could, I was, I'm only working on my, you know, my impressions and my visceral reactions to things. So for me, I was like, what does this have to do with the song? So now you're going to explain to me what it, what it has to do with the song. Um, okay. So what okay. Roxanne said about it. I asked her and she came back and she said, well, first, it's a beautiful song and it's also kind of complicated. The layers of narration contradict each other. And I love that. I'm a sucker for unreliable narrators. This particular piece has a feeling of wistful memory that lies to itself, like a nostalgia that covers up a real loneliness and sadness. And there were a couple lines that really stuck with me. The opening... Quote, I'm not a selfish man, or maybe yes, I am. With the last verse, quote, I'll tell you a tale, got me thinking about closure and storytelling, about how people need to be heard. But what happens when the person you need to listen to just won't? How can you be heard when you don't want to tell yourself the truth and when people don't want to hear it? I will admit my monologue also lives in a place that's very angry and hurt. I know too many people have been hurt like the speaker. I know too many people got away with it. And like the song says, it's starting to feel like a cliche. Sometimes you just can't win that old cliche again. But then the question becomes, what does it mean to win in a no-win scenario? And for me, it means living, moving on, and telling the truth and finding a way to breathe. That's why the speaker wins. Yes, they were hurt, and in a lot of ways, they'll never be okay, but they get to move on and live. So the thing... I find so much interesting about this. Some of the things that I find interesting is that there are seeds planted in David's piece that then are actually the prompts for where she went. And she wasn't necessarily aware of that. And they go off in a very different direction. But things like sometimes you just can't win that old cliche again. That's David's piece. He starts and ends it with that, right? To me, it was very filmic. Like if you saw this happening in a movie and you knew who these people were, you'd be like, yes, that's exactly how that crazy conversation would go, you know, cause when you are hurt, when you're like unrequited love or you're not getting what you need from the other person, you, you do that, right. You, you, you doubt yourself. You talk about, you know, you know, your shortcomings or, you know, whatever. And like, it's great when someone's not answering you, 
you just, you incriminate yourself, right? You're incriminating yourself because you're not getting feedback. And so it's like, you just imagine the feedback that is coming is somehow negative. And so now you're just digging your hole deeper and deeper about who you are. The thing, one thing that jumps out to me that's so fun is that there's very different storytelling techniques in the three monologues in this episode. So Barb, in your storytelling technique, and uh, not to pigeonhole you, but you yourself described yourself as a murder mystery writer. And I think you can really see that not just in the fact that there is a murder plot point, but also because the way you construct your story, all of the pieces are sort of clues to put together a bigger picture of the backstory of who these characters are. The little pieces of information, like you said, she always takes the late shift. That piece of information is there because it gives you information about her relationship with Roy. It's a clue to kind of fill in a puzzle. And that is characteristic of almost everything in your piece. Like all of every little line is like a clue. And then you look at David and his lines aren't clues. They're all red herrings. They're literally every single line is to throw you off. It's to, just, it's to confuse you as to what he wants to talk about. Right. Which is fun. And especially in a comic setting, like the way he's presenting it, it's really enjoyable. But it's almost the exact opposite of the way you treat the pieces of information you're putting in your writing. And then you get to Roxanne. And to me, uh, one of the things and this is what you were touching on, is that it's very voyeuristic. uh, It's very naturalistic. And it's also in media res like it starts and it doesn't really have much interest in kind of telling you what happened beforehand you can pick up a little bit but it's also kind of through a glass darkly because the author isn't really interested in whether you know what happened or not they're interested in presenting the conversation yeah. as the piece or the one-sided conversation because it's yeah, a voice and it's mail. interesting that you get no clue at all really to who the their object of love is right they do not describe this person. You don't know really anything. Well, yeah, they're just a couple of little clues about separation and and distance and 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 seeing across a room in the the college media. That's about it. Um, and uh, I was actually quite pleased with the piece um, in terms of this is the first time that we've had such a very direct separation from what came before it's not that it's completely separated it's not um there are, are many places like the the bar locale is thrown in there um you know a number of the 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 smaller things are used as plot points or the as descriptions within the piece she's taken the idea of character and said that the character is what i want to write about and that's all i want to write about and that to me is 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 thrilling in in this kind of sense and she, as she said in her kind of explanation, she got really interested in the idea of one-sided storytelling in a literal sense, not in the sense that these are all monologues and so they're all going to be storytelling, but the characters in the monologues are engaging in one-sided conversations. And that kind of comes into play in David's again. David is having us, he's talking about talking to another bar patron and that person isn't really listening. 
And then Sean takes that a bit further to make it explicit about somebody who uh, is talking to the bartender as their therapist, and that bartender is also just shaking their head at this ridiculous person. And Roxanne kind of rooted herself in that, that feeling of talking and that other person isn't listening to you. And then she, that was the core of her entire piece. Uh, you know, I think that when you're given this kind of a, a thing to do, you know, take inspiration, take what you will, you take what you will, you know, like it doesn't have to include Roy or Ray or Neil or anybody, right? It doesn't have to include, you know, a bar or, you know, being told not to hum. Like it doesn't have to include any of that. You take what you take from it. And so, you know, she did exactly that. She took it in a direction that... In a way, like, I mean, I totally get her when you had her sort of tell her journey of how she got to where she got to. It's great. It's neat. But I kind of don't even need to know that, you know, whatever came out. That's great. That's what came out. That's what we ended up with. And so, yeah, like, I'm all for it. I think that that's one of the great things about this sort of experiment is you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know where it's going to lead. Right. So. One other interesting thing that carried through this entire episode, um, starting with your piece, Barb, is that all of the monologues are sort of engaging in, I guess, what I would call like diegetic monologues. I don't know. Maybe I'm inventing a term there. But like <laughs> within within the world of the piece, the person is monologuing. Like the person is talking out loud to somebody else and that other person isn't talking back. And you, in your piece, that's because they're talking to an inanimate object. But that is what they're doing. It's not a monologue that exists as a story being read. It is a, you know, it's almost a radio drama where there's only one person there. <laughs> they're just talking. And then that kind of carried through uh, Eric's song and into David's piece where he's talking to another person at the bar who really doesn't say anything, but they're presumed to be there. And then that goes into Roxanne's piece where it's a voicemail message and she's actually talking to somebody who can't talk back because it's a voicemail message. And that's, I thought that was really interesting. Oh, again, I, I think that, that, that went all the way through. I actually think that Zuby started it out because I think that her, her, her kind of, her, her song was meant to be to a specific person. Again, all of it has, has become aimed at somebody specific, whether it be dialogue or song or monologue or what have you. And, <clears throat> and I think that's a good way to, to that. I think we're going to find in a lot of pieces as we go along as well is that the very spe specificity of the person being talked to is, is going to be specifically played out in all of these pieces. And I think that's a really good thing to hear and see. Yeah, well, I think it's a really neat thing that who who each monologuist was talking to is different in all three pieces. Because in the first piece, the character in my piece, she's really talking to herself. I mean, she's talking to a frog. It's inanimate. But, you know, she's really working out in her own mind what happened and what she needs to do now. You know, and then in the second piece, even though the whoever they're talking to isn't answering back... Um, there's, there's theoretically someone else in the room. There is an actual person this the guy's talking to. And then in Roxanne's piece, she's leaving a message for someone to listen to later. Right. So it's kind of like, it's really kind of awesome how we managed to cover like 
sort of every variation of why you would monologue. And it, grow- and it grows in specificity, too. It kind of builds. I like that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because in Barb and your piece, the character is talking to no one, really. It's yes. a It's a inanimate object that has mm-hmm. no you know personhood in and of itself in the next piece it's a person but it's a stranger there's no relationship between the speaker and the person in the third piece it's a very very important relationship it's a specific relationship it's a relationship that the monologue's about and so that's also really interesting so thank you for listening this has been uh, Streams and Variations talk back for episode 2 I'd like to thank Barb Sheffer for joining us and I'd like to thank my co-producer Sean Erker thank you both very much You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I'm going to leave the specific details to Mr. Sean about telling you all of our technical things. Okay, well, uh, our next episode, episode three, will be released uh, two weeks after this episode comes out. Uh, It will have six entirely new pieces uh, from six new, new artists different artists and if you'd like to contact us you can reach us at streams and variations podcast at gmail.com we're also on twitter uh, at variations pod and instagram also at variations pod and you can find us on facebook at uh, streams and variations podcast um our website is www.streamsandvariations.com. Uh, yeah, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and uh, please give us a review because it really helps us out. Bye for now.